Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Coffee After Credits. I hope you had a pleasant two weeks since our discussion of Casablanca. Uh, If you missed the social media updates, uh, Coffee After Credits is currently available on all major platforms. That includes Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. And the show will always be available at coffeeaftercredits.com. Overall, it was a very smooth launch. The website and every platform seem to be functioning properly. And before we dive into our topic for today, I wanted to thank everyone again who listened to the podcast debut. Uh, I was thinking of incorporating a great holiday film this week to fit with the season, but uh, Die Hard does not seem to fit the politicinema topic as well as one might think. This particular film served as a precursor to the classic drama Network from 1976. Uh, As I mentioned last episode, uh, this is a film that speaks volumes about our modern political landscape. And you have probably already started drawing those parallels if you have seen the film. Now, I want to preface this discussion with two disclaimers. One, I am far from the first to compare this film with the current American political landscape. And second, uh, I am not here to influence your political preference in any capacity. That is definitely not my intention. There will be factually plain points made that are critical of both sides of the spectrum. And yes, there will be parallels made uh, regarding our incumbent president. This is an analysis about how we wound up at this point and how this week's particular film predicted the outcome of a presidential election, as well as the susceptibility of the collective mindshare. Directed and produced by Elia Kazan, story and screenplay by Bud Schulberg, starring Andy Griffith as Larry Lonesome Rhodes, Patricia Neal as Marcia Jeffries, and Walter Matthau as Mel Miller. It's the 1957 drama A Face in the Crowd. This is Coffee After Credits. Politics have entered a new stage, the television stage. Instead of long-winded public debates, the people want caps or slogans. Time for a change, the mess in Washington, more bang for a buck, punchlines and glamour. Think you underestimate the respect which people are never... Respect? Did you ever hear of anyone buying any product, beer, hair ants, tissue, because they respect it? You gotta be loved, man. Loved! Politicinema, part two. I'll admit that I first viewed this film somewhat recently, and that experience was somewhat shocking. Uh, How so? Well... Well, I'm going to share with you. Let me take you back. And this time, not far at all. Just over two years ago, the American people were given a choice between two presidential candidates who both proved to fall well below the line of political acceptability. To briefly recap for the sake of fairness, Hillary Clinton, the left-wing candidate, embodied the polarizing Democratic establishment, which, should be noted, was caught deliberately sabotaging Bernie Sanders' radical campaign, carried the trouble weight 
of a history as a career politician that many voters were hostile toward, grew incredibly overconfident with her supposed lead, and botched her own campaign by writing off crucial states as easy wins, completely failed to find a compelling platform that would resonate with Americans besides the limp, at least I'm not him argument, and foolishly referred to half of her opponent's supporters as, quote, the basket of deplorables. That's a large bridge burned between her campaign and nearly a quarter of the overall voter turnout, and it very likely cost her support beyond that quarter. The right-wing candidate, on the other hand, thrived on fear, general discontent, and the rejection of radical liberal self-righteousness, promised a pushback against rapid globalism and the demonization of conservative America, and proved that Americans no longer care about the character of a candidate, so long as that candidate sells them a narrative they specifically want to hear. It's been over two years since Donald Trump won the 2016 election, and since then, the United States has been plagued with frustrating irony. The left-leaning media attacks an unhinged figure that they largely played a role in creating, while that unhinged figure attacks the industry that gave him a platform to influence public opinion of his own persona. This is about the dangers of a medium, the virus of falsehoods. This very podcast is about understanding, absorbing, appreciating, and in a way, celebrating storytelling. But this particular episode also serves as a cautionary warning against certain narratives. False narratives. In A Face in the Crowd, Andy Griffith takes on the role of Larry Lonesome Rhodes, a man who devolves from a morally neutral vagabond with merely his self-interest in mind to a celebrity with a need to upstage every person in his vicinity whenever the public eye is upon him, and whose off-camera character is morally reprehensible. He's exhaustingly boisterous, and forcefully commands the room right up until his bitter end. The performance required so much energy that Griffith reportedly requested discarded chairs to destroy whenever he desired in order to rile him up for scenes. Who would have thought Rhodes was a premonition of where America finds itself today? in a generation when the entirety of media can be virtually weaponized by political parties. Donald Trump's modern stardom is partially a result of his television stardom. The Apprentice is a reality show, and I always, always use air quotes whenever I use the phrase reality show. I do so because unless you're making a documentary. Footage of reality is extremely rare to acquire for entertainment. When subjects realize they are being recorded on camera, it inherently becomes a false narrative. The public's perception of Trump is generally tethered to the businessman persona it was spoon-fed through The Apprentice. But it's a show. It's some form of entertainment. And the fact that Trump is in office in the first place 
is enough to reevaluate the current integrity the presidential office bears. With a demeanor that is, frankly, embarrassing, this commander-in-chief addresses the United Nations and they actively laugh at him, not with him, but at him. And the nation is now the most divided since the peace movement and Vietnam War. Many people even say since the Civil War. And so far, there's not too much to show for it. And to evaluate our current situation, people need only turn to the narrative of A Face in the Crowd, a film that clearly exposes the threats we face today. And from this film, we must extract the embedded lesson to avoid the more disastrous real-life outcome. Within the film, Rhodes met his downfall, but in reality, the people could meet their downfall. The American public within the film are just about the same American people of modern reality. They bought into the pitch of a snake oil salesman, allowed a shyster to take hold of the social mindshare, propelled a charlatan to the position of a public official. Give me a whole bunch of colorful country-looking characters all sitting around, listening to lonesome roads sound off about everything from the price of popcorn to the hydrogen bomb. I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, a force, a force. Trump is not an articulate man. That is virtually indisputable at this point nor is he very book smart, but we must give credit where credit is due. Trump succeeded in one thing, and that was finding a way to resonate with voters who feel disenfranchised and conservative voters who are tired of the political establishment. Trump uses a blend of repetition, fear tactics, and combative characterizations, but one shouldn't necessarily mistake that for a representation of his own voters' intelligence. Rhodes is ultimately brought down by his wronged ex-fiancée, Marsha, who intentionally switches on Rhodes' microphone as he unwittingly berates his listeners live on air. He calls them fools, and the true, ugly side of this man of the people comes to light. The sheeple finally become self-aware. And even though it isn't her story, Marsha is a fascinating character in her own right. Essentially, she is Dr. Frankenstein. Starting as a remarkable talent agent in radio, Rhodes is partly her creation. It's only until he casts her aside that she realizes the monster brought to life by her own hand. She destroys him with his own words and liberates the American people by exposing the truth. You know what the public's like, a cage full of guinea pigs. Good night, you stupid idiot. <laughs> Good night, you miserable slob. <laughs> there are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. That might just be the one thing that could have brought Trump to his knees. A direct attack on his own voter base. This is a man who can get away with making heinous remarks about women, as the Access Hollywood tape clearly indicated a couple years back. Presidential candidates would never have been able to get away with anything like that in the past. 
because we held them to a higher standard. Never mind the fact that the tape was 11 years old. The character of the highest representative of the people should not bear that much ambiguity. Lonesome Rhodes probably could have gotten away with similar remarks as long as he offered a half-hearted apology and talked his way around it. But, as of this recording, Trump has never been caught berating his own voters, and I do think that is the silver bullet. People have a tendency to reject a person who insults their intelligence or character. That's part of the reason Trump was elected in the first place. The caricature of conservative America as a broadly backwards, backwoods populace only makes the actual people aligned with the Republican Party resentful. There are even parallels between the ratings and publicity within the film and those of current real-life television networks. Rhodes' ad reads for The Mattress Company portrayed the business in an embarrassingly unfavorable light. You would think this would spell doom for the sponsorship deal, and yet the head of the company discovers that the berating ads actually increased sales by 55%. This lends quite a bit of credence to the phrase, any publicity is good publicity. In the many months leading up to election night, the predominantly left-leaning media gave Trump far more coverage than his Democratic opponent. And despite the fact it was overwhelmingly negative, it was still coverage. Taking the year of the film's release into consideration, Rhodes completely subverts the norms of the television medium and public opinion and is extraordinarily comparable to the current Trump era. Both Rhodes and Trump even share a tendency to engage in similarly morally reprehensible actions. On his rise to national fame, Rhodes tossed women to the side like they were disposable refuse, then abandoned his fiancée and flew to Mexico to marry a 17-year-old drum majorette. Trump's rumored infidelity has been widely known for a decade, and he evidently paid off a porn star for sexual services and was caught on tape making disgustingly lewd comments degrading women. Both are pandering, unconvincing, casual Bible thumpers. Both frequently and rudely dismiss the opinions of others and hardly give anyone a remote chance of making a salient point. Both maintain physically unhealthy lives, branded by self-indulgence, and both act like they have every possible aspect of the entire world figured out, even though their general knowledge leaves much to be desired. This whole country just like my flock of sheep. Rednecks, crackers, hillbillies, housefrows, shut-ins, pea-pickers. Everybody that's got to jump when somebody else blows the whistle. <laughs> They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. <laughs> Only they're even more stupid than I am, so I gotta think for them. In the grand scheme of things, it seems the only major difference between Trump and Rhodes is where each originally started in the social hierarchy. Rhodes, an impoverished, egoistic drifter. Trump, a gross level 
of financial privilege that contributed to inherent egoism. You're gonna love me. Say you're gonna love me. Say you're gonna love me. You're gonna love me. You're gonna love me. Hey, what's your name? Francis. Francis, Francis, you're gonna love me. Francis, you're gonna love me. Love me, love me. With this overall comparison in mind, I have a suspicion that Rhodes and Trump also share the same critical weaknesses. Throughout Trump's campaign, only two blows could have possibly brought him down. As long as he avoided a proper conviction and guilty sentence of severe criminal activities or obscenely insulting his own supporters, he was virtually untouchable. He himself claimed that he, quote, could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and wouldn't lose any voters. But he stops just short of Rhodes' comments near the end of the film. Good night, you stupid idiot. (laughs) Good night, you miserable slob. (laughs) There are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. The film's director, Aliyah Kazan, stated, One of the points we wanted to make with the picture was the fantastic upward mobility in this country. And this was illustrated wonderfully, but also dynamically. What makes it compelling is that this mobility works both ways. Rhodes' rise to stardom is quite an expedited process, but what's even quicker is his demise when his own platform His very medium is what does him in by the hand of Marcia. It demonstrates the nuance of this narrative. The media is depicted as a tool that has the potential to inflict great harm on society and should be viewed apprehensively by the public. A line in the film refers to television as, quote, the greatest instrument of mass persuasion in the history of the world. But the medium itself is also what brings truth to the surface of public consciousness and cripples a crass, non-genuine spokesperson. Its power works both ways. So how exactly do we avoid these types of characters as a collective society? I don't know if there is a surefire solution to the threat, and yes, It is a threat, because it undermines the very integrity of the represented people, of us. It devalues the very concept of democratic representation. The manipulation of the mind is not such a difficult task when a speaker with ulterior motives is given a platform through a medium that is established and accepted The best advice to give, in my opinion, is to learn from previous mistakes and refine one's own judgment. Take into consideration verbal and physical language to provide insight to a subject's character. If you personally met these subjects in an everyday scenario, would you trust them? Or would you suspect them of trying to take advantage of you? How do they try to convince you? What do they appeal to? Do they make logical arguments? Do they provide empirical evidence to back up their claims? We must be better 
and appeal to our own reason for the sake of our own well-being. Our next opportunity to turn the tide in favor of our own betterment will take place in less than two years. And that's not a plea to select one party over another, for I have no party affiliation. All I can recommend is making decisions with your conscience and doing your best to take narratives in which your existence seems to actually matter, not merely to serve as fodder for the betterment of an establishment or a select few individuals. Because you, ladies and gentlemen, are so far from sheeple. In a time of crisis, who else could rally the people like Lonesome Roads? Who else could move the people to action like Lonesome Roads? You are looking at America's answer to the crying need for national... He likes lots of applause. Beat it! Because the people listen to Lonesome Roads. Because the people love Lonesome Roads. Lonesome Roads is the people. The people is Lonesome Roads. Beat it! And that will bring this episode to a close. It's a little shorter than I would have liked it to have been, but what are you going to do? Time constraints have been fairly brutal in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Next episode, it will not be as short. It will probably be uh, very lengthy, considering the screening selected. In two weeks, we'll jump forward to 1964 and discuss a film that completely changed the way the public handled its deepest dread and most alarming fear. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, it's the political satire black comedy Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This is a personal favorite of mine and is one of the rare comedies I recommend everyone see for reasons if not yet apparent, hopefully soon will be. I don't think there will ever be a film quite like it. Again, the podcast is now fully available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your platform of choice and pass the word along to those who might also be interested. Great reviews are very much appreciated, and if you'd like to peek ahead at the episodes to come, check the website for a larger view of the upcoming slate. That's at coffeeaftercredits.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jay Schunkweiler, and thanks for joining me for Coffee After Credits.